Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Know It All, the ABCs of education. Listen to us live every Tuesday at 10 a.m. or at any time from the comfort of your computer at blogtalkradio.com slash knowitall. Today's show is a featured show on the Blog Talk Radio website. Be sure to follow us at blogtalkradio.com. At Know It All, we have candid conversations about the education issues that impact your community and the real-life solutions to education issues that you face every day. We aim to make you a know-it-all about education law, policy, and practice as it affects you. I am your host, Allison R. Brown of Allison Brown Consulting, ABC. I am a civil rights attorney with expertise in the laws that require equity in public education, regardless of students' background or characteristics. Keep up with me at AllisonBrownConsulting.com. My guest host is the lovely Alexis J. Smith of Entitled to Educate. Good morning, Alexis. Good morning, Allison. She is a community engagement and parent empowerment specialist. Check her out at EntitledToEducate.com. Today's show is about the world of education, literally. There are children all over the world who must endure tremendously difficult circumstances in order to go to school. War zones, natural disaster. There are organizations working to help keep schooling a priority despite such crisis situations. And there are children in this country who have to navigate a perilous route to school every day, who experience discrimination in school and out, and as we saw on December 14th in Newtown, have seen and have seen on too many other occasions, who experience the violence that results from unmet mental health needs and competitive social order. There is much that we can learn here in this country about what happens in the world when children experience crisis. We're recording live today before an audience of students from Reinhardt College who are visiting Washington, D.C. from Georgia. Many of them are in this country to receive a college education, visiting from Latin America. I'm so excited to have a true international audience. Joining us by phone today is our special guest, Dr. Lori Henninger, the director of the Interagency Network for Education in Emergencies, INEE an open global network of more than 5,700 members, including practitioners, students, teachers, United Nations staff, nonprofit organizations, and others. INEE members work together to ensure the right to education in emergencies and early recovery. Good morning, Dr. Henninger. Thank you for joining us. Good morning, and I am very, very happy to be here with all of you. Thank you so much for inviting me. Sure. Will you first explain what the INEE is exactly and tell us how long it has been in existence and how you accomplish your goals? I'd be happy to. Uh, The Interagency Network for Education in Emergencies, INEE, it's a very long name, uh, has been around since 2000. And INEE started when a very small group, it was really three or four people, realized that um, if children in situations of conflict and natural hazard were not being provided with education that, first of all, their their fundamental human rights were not being met, and second, the education for all, the internationally agreed to goals, education for all would not be met. And so the three of them, Peter Buckland, um, Eldred Midtung, and Chris Talbot, um, with, with others, uh, formed the interagency network, and it's grown from those three initial members and those three organizations to actually almost 8,000 members at this point. The interagency network is a network. We exist because our members decide 
that they want the network to exist. And it's it's a way for people to come together um, and to provide, to look at where the gaps in education and emergencies and education, protecting education from attack um, are, where the, where the gaps are in the field. And then to work collaboratively to fill those gaps, whether that's groups of organizations or institutions coming together to fill those gaps with representatives, uh, whether it's individuals coming together to look at where the gaps are and then to fill those gaps. Um, and then we also provide a huge amount of information on education and emergencies through our listserv, our website. Um, and then finally, we do work on uh, on advocacy to ensure that the human rights of uh, all people, but particularly children and youth, are to education are met in emergency contexts. How does how does the INEE define emergency or disaster? Um, what are some specific examples of um, students who have been in emergency situations or in crisis that INEE has worked to address? This is a really good question, and I, I want to say, Allison, that it's something that I've I've been thinking about a lot, and I think that. Um, the, the people in your audience coming from Central America, I should say in the audience coming from Central America, um, are often in, in some situations, uh, in some contexts at least, living with what wouldn't be internationally necessarily recognized as uh, an emergency or a disaster, but really on a day-to-day -day basis are emergencies or crises for individuals and groups. So, you know, traditionally I think that that em emergency has been defined as a, a, a full-scale conflict uh, where there's fighting. Um, you know, 90% of the victims of conflict at this point are, are civilians and no longer military. So uh, conflict really does focus on non-combatants. Uh, and natural hazards. We call, we I say natural hazard because disasters are they're not always preventable, but a lot of what happens in disasters is present, is preventable. You know, it, it really the the people that are living on floodplains are probably people that can't afford to live anywhere else. And so they are predominantly affected by natural hazard which turns into a natural disaster because of their of where they are and their situation. So earthquakes, tsunamis, um hurricanes like we saw in the US recently, um you know, that those things are all part of of what INEE how we define emergency or disaster. We also have started to look for the well, not started, but in the last 5 years, we've looked at education in fragile states. If, because our sense is that we can't just be looking at response to a, an emergency. We have to take a step back and say, what can we do within the emergency world that can prevent or help mitigate uh, conflict or the results of, of natural hazard? Um, so that's that's how we sort of how we're how, how the international community is is defining emergencies now but i again i think that um 
we can't just stop there. We have to think about, um, I, I, I'm pretty sure my statistic is right here, that in Honduras there is there are more murders, I think, than in any other country in the world. And gangs um, in, and I'm just, I'm using Central America as an example, mainly because of your, of the audience, um, but gangs will um, step in and make it difficult for kids to get to school, or get, schools have been used as places that um, um, deals are done or whatever. And this, in my mind, that's an emergency. You know, that's that's jeopardizing children's and youth's right to education. It's making it unsafe for them to be in school. And it's not just in Central America. It's all over the world. It's here. I'm, as an American, I, I, I will tell you I'm an American, um, if you can't tell by my accent already, um, that, um, you know, that it, it happens right here. Um, you know, kids are afraid to go to school because of violence or threats or whatever. So in my, in my mind, we can't just say that emergencies are wars or natural hazards. There, there are things that are affecting kids' abilities to access education every day. And I think we need to be looking at all of those things. So I, I think, um, you know, the concept of education as a right, a human right, is an interesting one. Um, you know, in the United States today, um, individuals don't have a fundamental right to an education, um, much less a quality education. Um, that's a right that is guaranteed by the states who provide public education to their residents. And once the states decide to provide public education and accept federal money to do that, then schools have to comply with federal law that prohibits discrimination in education. But this concept of a universal right to education um, isn't something that as a nation the United States has embraced. How is it that the right to education is an international human right, and what does that mean for the United States? I, I just, there's a part of me that wants to laugh out loud, not um, for any other reason than it's, it's just so crazy that um, the United, well, the United States and Somalia are the two countries that have not signed on to the Convention of the Rights of the Child and not ratified it. Um, and and I think it's ironic that, um, based on international law, students in the U.S. Or, or children and youth in the U.S. technically don't have the right to an education. I think if you if you asked people in the U.S. do people, do children and youth in the U.S. have a right to education, people would say yes, but they wouldn't know what they were saying yes to. Um, and at, at the same time, I want to say I am far, far, far from an expert on education in the U.S. and, and, and law in the U.S. around education. Um, but I think that we're as, you know, as a country, in in many ways, we're very out of step with the rest of the international community, and it would be, um, in my mind, it would be a good thing for the U.S. to sign on to the inter, uh, the Convention on the Rights of the Child, which really, um, which really concretizes uh, the right to education. 
um, there's right to education within international humanitarian law. Um, There's a right to education in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. So these are all international treaties and um, that that governments not only sign on to but then have to ratify within within their own country and um, like I said earlier, I think it would be very helpful if the u s um, as as you know the u s likes to be seen as a world leader in human rights um, would step up and figure out how to get the convention passed well and in fact, you know yesterday um, our president was inaugurated for his second term, and um, he has called the fact that the United States has not ratified the Convention on the Rights of the Child an embarrassment for the country. And so uh, hopefully that's something that um, he'll address in his second term. Um, Lauren, will you talk to us about what the INEE and its member organizations recommend um, for countries to do to secure their schools and protect students, particularly during conflict situations? I certainly will. But I'd like to just take one quick step back, if it's okay, and say the Convention on the Rights of the Child will be ratified in the U.S. when public opinion pushes lawmakers to to take this up. And and so it's it's really incumbent upon us as individuals to make that case to our lawmakers in Washington to to move on this. So it's it's. There's something that we can do about it. It's not we're not we're not helpless or hopeless in this. There's something that we can take up. Okay, mm-hmm. now I will step off. Now I will step off my um, my soapbox. I hope it's not a soapbox. But <laughs> my daughter would say, "How much did they, how much did you pay to stand on that soapbox?" <laughs> um, so, in terms of protecting schools. Um, Governments are ultimately responsible, national governments are ultimately responsible for the safety of children in schools. And recently, um, the UN Security Council has passed a resolution that makes um, attacks on schools the same, it puts it in the same category of of attacks against um, civilians um, as attacks on hospitals or um, <clears throat> uh, there's one there's one other oh my gosh I can't remember right now um, but there are there are certain structures that you are not allowed to attack in a conflict situation so um, schools have been added now to that list within within UN within the UN uh, system which is very good because although it's not um, a panacea it does provide precedent for um, holding governments accountable for attacks on schools. So um, ultimately, like I said, it's it's the government's responsibility. It's also the responsibility of armed groups or armed combatants to live within international the, the, this new international uh, statute, um, to not to use schools um, or not to attack schools, and. Schools get used in a number of ways. One is in um, in the occupation. I remember being in Burundi a number of years ago and coming into the front of a school campus and you know everybody was at their desks and they were they were learning 
calculus and, you know, I mean, advanced mathematics. And we walked back to the back of the school campus, and in the dormitories were um, automatic weapons hanging on the walls and uniforms. And, and this was before I was really immersed in education and emergencies, and I thought, you know, just as a as a um, as a human being, I thought, how can this be that schools are being used by the official military? Kids are learning up front, and there are semi-automatic weapons in the back, and soldiers, and sort of what does that mean for kids' psyches, and how do you deal with that on a regular basis? So um, ensuring that there is a significant separation between schools and the military is very important. There's also an area I think that's important that we don't often um, think about. Uh, Here in the States, voting booths are in schools. Seems absolutely appropriate, community centers, whatever, you go and you vote. But in countries where um, there's significant, there's political violence, schools may not be the best place to have a voting booth. So that's, you know, sort of thinking outside of the norm um, in addition to international law or international statutes uh, about how to keep kids safe is really important. In Uganda, parents got together and they would escort kids to and from school during the conflict in the north to make sure that kids got back and forth to school safely. So, you know, com- there's community involvement, there's political involvement, there are, there are lots of ways um, the, and the final thing I would say is that the Global Coalition to Protect Education from Attack, it's a relatively new group. Um, they are doing a lot of work on this topic, and uh, education, above all, uh, is also doing a lot of work on this topic, and their, their information is available online. Alexis, I wonder if you could share with us your thoughts about what international policy can teach us about how we operate in this country to protect our schools? Sure, Allison, um, and good morning, Lori. I um, want to be the first to admit to both of you and the audience today that I am not particularly well-versed um, as it relates to international policy, but I can pull um, from my own experience of having traveled to Israel in the mid-1990s. And among many highlights of the total experience, I can vividly recall a feeling of limitation or hesitancy in almost every step that I made. Um, And maybe it was more, you know, that the general feeling we all get in a foreign land, be that a foreign country or simply at a neighbor's house. You know, when we are not at home, we tend to increase our guard, even if it's just a little bit. And I think that um, parents, of school-aged children in the United States today, I think it would do us well to see our neighborhood schools as somewhat of the home of a friendly neighbor and that we believe it to be a safe place or else our children wouldn't be there, but that we still maintain our responsibility for accepting the reality that things happen. And in that acceptance of responsibility, we prepare the building, the security systems, whatever response plans, are necessary. We, we build those things up to, um, I guess, maximize the likelihood of survival of our teachers and students against any number of possible threats, you know, from those aggressive attacks of malicious intent 
through the passive, but, you know, maybe not even so passive, but the very real threat of being runners-up in a globally competitive society. Uh, I, um, I read a blog just this morning that discussed the fortress-like environments of some of the schools in Mexico and Israel, in both areas we know to be uh, conflict-prone. And you know, as the image of these fortress-like environments was painted, I found myself envisioning um, somewhat of a Jetsons-style, you know, school building where you click the button and, you know, all the, the, the security alarms fold up and, you know, using all of the most advanced technology um, implemented to not only secure the building but also, you know, within that secure perimeter that there would be a very sound oasis of learning. So, Lori, I realize that this is, you know, a bit fantastical, but I'm hoping that you can give us some insight on the real impact <coughs> that modern technology can make on the safety and the quality of our schools. How can technology make a difference here? I Thank you so much. I just I love the idea of the school as a friendly neighbor's house. I, I think that's just brilliant. Um, um, I... In terms of security I and, and and technology I'm just I'm just not sure. We're we're working in in our the people that are members of the INEE network we're focusing more on things like um if if you know that there's a monsoon every year and it floods river X and kids have to cross that river to get to school Let's figure out where to put the school so that kids don't have to cross that river. Mm-hmm. Or if you live, like in, in China, uh, a few years ago, there was that horrific earthquake where a school collapsed and many, many children were killed. Um, how do we work with governments to ensure that building codes are up to snuff for an earthquake-prone area? So we're we're the I would say the global coalition to protect education from attack would be looking more at the security aspect, and we tend to look more at the sort of um construction disaster risk reduction you know like some very basic things like do kids in a floodplain know how to swim mm-hmm. you know so if they don't. Let's figure out how to build swimming into the curriculum so that they can at least tread water if if there's a flood. You know, I mean, very fundamental things like this. But technology is really critical when um, when you want to figure out how to get curriculum and information to teachers in areas where um, where it may be very difficult to get uh, mother tongue textbooks or um, things like that uh, into a specific setting. Gotcha. Lori, the, the INEE has minimum standards, um, and those are available on the website, ineesite.org, and they are very specific that human rights requires not just access to education, but access to quality education. How should quality of education be measured? Um, For those of you that are old enough to remember, this is the $64,000 question. Um, (laughs) This is the um, how do we measure quality of education? 
there are so many factors, and um, the Brookings Institute in Washington is right now convening a very large group of people ar- from around the world to look at how do you how to measure quality in education, and. Um, you know, some people will say it's how you measure learning, what somebody learns. Um, my, you know, I think the the caveat there is if you focus learning down to reading and math, then you've got a real problem because education, in it, it, to me, is uh, is about, and I think to most of the members of INEE, is about ensuring that that young people have the ability to process information, to think for themselves, to think critically, um, to, you know, in, in some, in, in the instances where, you know, I mean, art and music, to be able to to know, um, I don't want to say art appreciation, but like to be able to create things. I mean, it's, it's a fundamental um, drive in us as, as, as human beings, I think, to make to make something, you know, um, and for those of us that have have it that drive more strongly than others, if if you don't have that outlet, is that a quality education? I think you know the other thing that we have to look at is where do people start from, um, and if you're talking about measuring quality education, you have to factor in where people are starting from. We all don't start from the same place, and that's just a fact. And, you know, if if you're really talking about good measurement, you have to figure out how you measure learning um, for people with cognitive disabilities. You know, those people with cognitive disabilities can't be left out of the measurement. You have to include them, too. So it's it's a very complicated, in my mind, it's a very, it's a multifaceted um uh, process to measuring quality education, but I, I think that the, the critical point here is acknowledging the teacher and the student as the, the whole human beings that they are and 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 treating them as the whole human beings that they are and not saying, well, we're reducing you down to this because that's what the test can measure. And again, that's hugely complicated. It takes a lot of time. And it should really be lifted up in, in all education settings. And, and, and you know, again, as, as somebody, as an American, it needs to be done here. I think that's an excellent point. You know, you hear a lot of discussion about um, holistic education and providing, um, you know, holistic opportunities in education. And, and that is, um, I think the point that you've made is exactly where that's coming from, is that we we need to acknowledge students and teachers as whole beings and as human beings, and that, you know, they have to respect and, and appreciate one another for that also. Um, and that, I think, has proven to be somewhat difficult Um Certainly, in this country and, and probably around the world as well. It it, it um, is. So, so the phone lines are open. Um, call in three four seven two zero two zero nine one one with any questions or comments that you have for Lori. Um, and the chat room is open as well. Alexis, I wonder if you would um, 
tell us what you think is important for parents and communities to understand about international access to education. Absolutely. And actually, uh, Lori, I'm going to virtually escort you back to the soapbox where I hope you will proudly stand to share with us a little <laughs> bit more um, on the Convention on the Rights of the Child. And I think, you know, Allison, to answer your question, I think no matter how close-knit our uh, – communities are, you know, we're still vulnerable to a global mindset, you know, all, all of the highs and the lows that come with that. Um, and once we accept that vulnerability and our responsibility in it, um, I think it becomes very easy to understand that we must advocate for quality education in as many communities across the world as possible. So, Lori, I want to yield uh, back to you, please, and ask if, you know, you would share more on the Convention of Rights of the Child and let us know, the parents and the community members who are listening know um, where we can go to find more information. Obviously, we can Google it, you know, if there are particular sites. And then, you know, what would you uh, challenge us uh, to do as the first step in that call to action? Um, I, again, you know, I, I always feel like I have to make a disclaimer first. I am not an expert in, in international law around education, but it, you, can, um, you can easily get copies of the Convention on the Rights of the Child on the Internet. Um, on, you know, if you go to the UN website, you can definitely find it there. Um, and it really, um, it's, I mean, there's some wonderful, wonderful language in here, and I'll, I'll just, if it's okay with you, I'll just read one. Um, state parties shall assume assure to the child who is capable of forming his or her own views the right to express those views freely in all matters affecting the child. It really, and, and then it, 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 it ends with the views of the child being given due weight in accordance with the age and maturity of the child. So from the foundation, the Convention on the Rights of the Child is really about honoring the human um uh, the, the the humanity within children, um, and I, I I think the 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 thing that I I I would re I would say more than anything is is what I said before, and that's that um, people in the United States can make a change here, and they can work in order to ensure that. This comes up on the internet uh, on the national political agenda. Given that our president has said that this is an embarrassment, there is some political momentum there. Um, in order, and and that's what we need. We need a you need a window of opportunity. And so now that that statement is out there. Community members can take that and they can write to their legislators. They can get petitions. They can form interest groups. And they can petition their legislators to get this on the U.S. agenda and move it forward. So the call-in number is 347-202-0911. Call in with your comments or questions. Um, does our audience here, our live audience, have any questions for Lori? No questions at all? <laughs> I think we're feeling a little shy this morning. More on uh, going back to the, I'm sorry, my name is Daniel. I'm from Atlanta. 
Going back to the Convention of the Rights of the Children, uh, we talked about uh, public policy directing our uh, legislators to, to effect change and to ratify this convention. Um, what ways could we as young college students um, do or, or what kinds of things could we do to ensure that um, we get out to, uh, to our congressmen and women and uh, speak to them about this issue? That's a great question from Daniel. Lori, do you have any thoughts? I do. I just want to make sure I heard the question correctly. Can you um, can you just can you repeat it to me? I, it was there was a little bit of an echo sure. there. Okay. So Daniel is asking about what young college students can do to lobby their Congress people, um, their representatives in ah. Congress, to to ratify the Convention on the Rights of the Child. I think that there are a number of things. One is, first, awareness has to be raised. Um, people don't really know about the convention. They don't necessarily care about it. They feel like, well, whatever, we have laws in the United States that are just as good. So um, being reading, doing some reading about what the critical points are to make with legislators, I think, is, is really helpful. Um, and then you can do a number of things. You can email um, your legislator. You can write to them, write a hard copy letter. I always think at this point writing hard copy letters is the way to go because they get so many emails and they get so f many fewer hard letter, you know, um, snail mail letters. That That's really great. The other thing you can do is if you're in Washington or you plan a trip to Washington, you can go meet with them. They will meet with you. They will listen to you. Um, you can also find out where their offices are um, in your in, in your your district where you vote, and you can go to the office or meet them at the office. Um, you can look at who within Congress is interested or has shown some interest in the Convention on the Rights of the Child, and you can um, link with them. You can do something at school that raises awareness on the convention and you can ask people to sign postcards or send postcards or do emails. So there's a whole bunch of different advocacy um, uh, initiatives that you can take. Did that answer the question? Yes, it does. Thank you. Are there other questions from the audience? <clears throat> sure. Okay, I'm Kyle from Atlanta. Well, you You mentioned the window opportunity with this and I'm guessing you the window, you mentioned the window opportunity, and I'm guessing that's because of yesterday's mentioning of it, the inauguration. So I was wondering, where can we actually start to decide uh, places such public, like schools and such? Where else can we go to raise this awareness and, and just take advantage of this opportunity? So Gustavo's asking where we can go um, to take advantage of this window of opportunity um, that President Obama also mentioned in his speech yesterday. Um, how how do we take advantage of this window of opportunity and really galvanize a movement to um, support children in schools? Um, I would uh, thank you, Gustavo. I would I mean I would write to the to the president and say you know we've or or look at um, the department of look at 
um, who is sitting in the cabinet and write some letters there. It's background. It's legwork at this point. It's it's sort of getting doing the background work that you need to do to find out which of the which Congress people are in favor of supporting the convention, and then meeting with them, talking to them, and seeing who else they can potentially get involved. Um, you know, and say, look, the president has said this. You you know, you're going to want to be careful who you talk to because if the president has said this, some people are going to say no. And other people are are going to be more open to it. Um, so that's I would say that's that's the way is is looking at who the supporters are, and find out if those supporters within Congress are talking to each other, and use the leverage of that statement. Um, you know, with INEE we have a UN resolution on the right to education in emergencies, and we use that resolution because the international the people the member states in the general assembly have signed on to it so if there is um uh, a situation where education is not being provided in an emergency the international community can use that resolution to say look you have to meet your obligations here now we're a little further down the line than that but what you can say is look the president said this in his speech and this seems to be a priority and how do how do you, how is congress going to move forward how are you as my legislator going to move forward and i i also would say Lori, i think it's important to recognize that and and you touched on this that um i think there's a sentiment that federal laws and laws in this country are adequate protection for children in this country and that we don't need to um, ratify the Convention on the Rights of the Child because we've got enough protection here. Um, and I think part of the the advocacy and part of the push for lobbying um, members of Congress is to say, you know, we're part of a global community mm -hmm. and um, in order to really be a successful part of that community, we've got to sign on to things such as this that may seem to be no-brainers for children in this country, but um, when you look closely, there are children in this, in this country who still suffer, even in school. Um, and and even talking about a community of enforcement, making sure that, um, you know, countries around the world are um, holding up their end of the bargain and that they are protecting children adequately in schools. Um, and elsewhere is important, and that the United States wants to lend its voice to that important um, thing. So I think it's important to know in advocating that although there are protections for children in this country, there are still ch children in this country who are marginalized in education, um, and the United States just certainly wants to be a part of the enforcement effort around um, protecting children in the, in the global community. Um, very well said. Lori, what? Lori, this is Susan Burton. Um, we're going to be, this group is probably going to meet with one or two members tomorrow um, here in Washington and wanted to find out from you, what is some of the rationale given for why we haven't signed on? What is what is the argument against signing? So that we're oh, prepared to know what. I hope this wasn't going to come up. <laughs> um, <laughs> part of it has to do with birth control and um, and reproductive rights and the right of a child to um, make decisions, you know, make make their own decisions around this. That's that's the argument that's often used. Um, and 
um, then I think the other argument that's used at times is what does this mean for um, sort of adult rights? Do child rights then supersede adult rights? And but those are and again I am not an expert on this. So, um, but this is in in my this is what I've heard that the um, some of the dilemmas are. Lori, I wonder if you'd talk to us a little bit. One key component of the INEE minimum standards is to protect students from discrimination in education. Mm-hmm. What does discrimination in the international arena look like, and how do countries protect against discrimination? Um, I'd say that it looks a lot like it looks in the U.S. Um, with with the with additions, um, but. But it all sort of it all it's it, it can be very similar. It's contextual, right? So that maybe in one area um, or in one country, um, a, education is uh, provided in a language that is not the predominant or primary language in a specific for a specific group. Um, Another situation may be um, that a textbook is uh, shows images of one group that are uh, that are less than uplifting, mm-hmm. um, you know, and and that group is within a within a school system or, or that, that at all that that whether they're it, you know, sort of so there are things like that um, that. In terms of international discrimination, I think that the more subtle things are like where you build a school. If you build a school on one side, I'm going to use the river analogy again. Do you build a school on one side of the river that favors one community, and the other community has children in the other community have to cross over? And what does that mean? And how is that seen by by the communities? Um, you know, politically. Um I've I've heard governments say well why would we want to educate that group because if we educate that group they're going to want political power and we don't want that Um so there there are there are very specific things and and you know the the bottom line is when you do that First of all, you're violating somebody's human rights, and second of all, you're setting up a country for conflict in the future. Um, it's 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 one of the things that we look quite closely at, and we've really done uh, a lot of work on within the INEE membership to look at how does education act as an education policies and policy implementation and programming act as either a mitigator or an exacerbator of conflict. Um, you know, if you're educating one, um, if, if one group is getting a better ed- a better quality education than another group, that's, that's, that's wrong. You know, it's just as simple as that. It's wrong. Um, if one racial group is getting a better education a more quality education than another. If it's an economic group, if it's an ethnic group, if it's children with disabilities that are not being that don't have access to quality education, that's the problem. So, 
all of the minimum standards addresses all of these issues. And one of the big ways that, I mean, government policy is critical here, but community participation really can can make a huge difference in um, in quality education or children having access to quality education. But there's sort of who are the teachers, what does the curriculum look like, um, uh, where are the schools placed, um, uh, who has access to those schools, um, who has the better quality textbooks or, you know, things like that. Great. Um, are there any other questions from our live audience? Um, the listening audience can call three four seven two zero two zero nine one one. Do you can, all have any other questions, Lori? Can I ask the Lori, audience? I, I want sure. to ask. Um, you know, because we do education in emergencies, and because the, this group is is primarily from Central America, is that correct? Mexico. And South America, yeah. And South America. I'd like to know what what things, what issues people in in their communities, in their countries are facing and how they see disaster or security or and access to education. And I know that, I'm, I don't mean to put people on the spot there, but I'm just, I, I think it's a fantastic opportunity. Any thoughts? <laughs> well, our our provenance, our um, we all have a heritage, and, and some of us were born in in these countries, Mexico, um, Central and South America, but most of us have been raised in the United States and are more familiar with the educational system in the United States. Um, we we hear only. Uh, or we, um, I'm sorry, we know only what we hear in the news or might um, be taught in, in a classroom or maybe our parents, what they told us about the um, educational system in, in those countries. But um, from, from my point of view and what I've heard is that education um, in these countries is uh, not a, a right but a privilege an honor or, or something that is left for those who have the money to, to afford the education. Um, and that many times um, when there is a natural disaster such as a, an earthquake or a hurricane uh, and these schools are destroyed, uh, unfortunately the government cannot go um, into these communities in time to uh, rebuild the, uh, the schools in order for the children to go back to, the, to their education um, with adequate, uh, inadequate time. Many, many times they go months without going back to school. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's something that um, I think the INEE um, is, is trying to, to help. And um, now we as uh, uh, people who live in the United States also um, have a responsibility to, to kind of uh, Get us get at the problem and and try to fix what's going on in our country. Um, we have um, the last uh, hurricane that that happened in in the northeastern United States. I'm sure left many schools um, be unable to to receive children um, and, and and have class. 
So maybe provide something that's temporary um, off of the school, you know, off campus or, or somewhere else to, to get that ad hoc um, education for the children. Excellent points. Did you hear those, Lori? That was great. That was great. And I, I'd like to, in the last few minutes that we have, we have about 10 minutes left, I, I'd like to um, open up a discussion. Given what we've seen in um, Newtown, Connecticut, the tragedy that we saw there, and in Bakersfield, California, um, with the child who went in with a, a shotgun, I think it was, um, and um, thankfully I think no one was killed in that incident. But what what do you all think about how we can better secure our schools and protect our our students um, as they're trying to get an education? What are some things that um, that we can do differently? And Lori, I wonder if you, you'd start the discussion with your perspective um, working with IEDE to protect children in exactly the same situation. It's. I have to say it's hard for me to separate my personal from my professional in, in this. Um, I'm a Quaker and I'm a pacifist, so I just I want to put that out there right off the bat. And so my views personally may not be the same as all of INEE's membership, although my sense is that uh, we would not be in favor, that the membership in general would probably not be in favor of arming teachers in schools. Um, it's, I, I think that the at Hur Hurricane Sandy, Hurricane Katrina, the Newtown massacre um, uh, really indicate that we we have some, you know, it's not just it doesn't just happen somewhere else that this this doesn't just happen outside of the u s that it happens right here and it goes back to i think what uh the the last student was saying and also what you were saying, Allison, that we are part of a global community, and that we have you know essentially we're responsible for one another um and and we've got to figure out how to make this how to how to ensure that kids have access to education and it's not it's not just happening somewhere else that we need to look at our own house as well as externally to figure out together how we can work on these issues because climate change is going to affect people all over the world and the US need we need to be a global player in this Any other thoughts about what we can do to protect our schools in this country? Um, I would like to have to like uh, repeat it. I think because we have like in schools, we have stuff about sex education, but like all these seminars, but nothing about mental health. And I think if we had more push for that, I know like these people that do these things are sick, like something's wrong mentally, and I think we should push for that. That's right. That's right. I think um, mental health is absolutely a, a key um, issue in schools and elsewhere. And I think, you know, when you look back on a lot of these stories, even Columbine and a lot of these stories of, of school shootings and shootings in schools, um, you hear people say, well, you know, I kind of saw that coming or we, we knew that something was wrong. Or we There was something that um, was was wrong with with 
the situation or how this person had been treated or um, how this person maybe was processing his or her environment. Um, and so it, it wasn't a shock that, that this person had acted out in this way. And so mental health is absolutely a, a key uh, key thing to think about. Uh, perhaps um, I believe the parents also need to play a part in this too because the, the parents should know what's wrong with their child and they should notify the school letting them know my child has this, my child has that. Like most schools, like parents will tell them, oh, my child has OCD, my child has ADHD, but they don't tell them like the other things, the things that's mentally wrong with them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, absolutely. Yes. Well, I'm going on the other side of this, there's more like security on the buildings in school. Um, really, um, I would go back to my high school to visit teacher, but they implemented a new rule that new visitors couldn't, uh, visitors couldn't come in until after school ended. And where they had to stay in the front of the building until school ended. Same thing with the middle school. Those are like really small steps to something big as a school shooting, but I think schools need to start implementing more security in that sense that they don't just and I think these these are certainly part of a holistic approach, right? When you talk about parents being involved and knowing what their children are up to and what their children are thinking and making sure that schools are secure, not necessarily by arming teachers, but making sure that there are layers to get into the building and that there are protective barriers to actually getting physical access to the building is one another way. Um, uh, another thing is um, parents with um, arms, like um, hunting rifles and whatnot, um, if they know something's wrong with their child, they should um, either lock them away and not have them around where they're um, easy to access. Um, is there another thing I want to speak Absolutely. Lori, in the last um, couple of minutes that we have here, would you just talk about how INEE and if INEE addresses um, mental health in, in education and, and is it considered a part of the um, emergencies in education um, um, crisis intervention approach? Absolutely. Um, we have two uh additional sort of guidance notes that accompany the minimum standards. One is on supporting learners with disabilities, and the other is a guide to inclusive education. And this really uh, runs the gamut from, from physical to cognitive to emotional disabilities, um, uh, and ensuring that during emergencies, all children have access. And this is sort of working, and has a lot to do with working with communities and working with teachers to equip them with the resources that they need to ensure that all children can get to school. Thank and I you think so much, I, Lori. Can I, oh. Actually, can I just say one more thing? And I think that in conflict situations or crisis situations, teachers need to be equipped in different ways because kids are suffering um, or could be suffering from pretty severe psychological stress. Mm-hmm. So um, it's that's a really important thing to, to keep in mind. Uh, around education and emergencies, that it's not it's not business as usual often for kids. Mm-hmm. 
So, Lori, if people are interested, how can people or organizations become members of INEE? Um, you can, anybody can join INEE. Uh, it, you can go to the website at www.ineesite.org. That's S-I-T-E dot org. Um, membership is free. Uh, it puts you in touch with, like I said, almost 8,000 other people that are interested in education and emergencies. And that gives you also the opportunity to get a lot of information about education and emergencies, participate in the work of our task teams, which includes gender, um, inclusive education, technology, uh, adolescence and youth, early childhood, quality education. I may have said that already. Uh, but but to, to really um, work with others that are looking at where the gaps are and how to fill those gaps. Thank you, Lori. Any closing thoughts from our, our audience here today? Parting words? <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Lori Hanninger is the Director of the Interagency Network for Education and Emergencies. Thank you so much for joining us today, Lori. I am so happy to have been able to be here, and thank you all, um, everybody in the audience, for your participation, and just keep up the good work, guys. Thank you. I also want to thank my wonderful guest host, Alexis Smith. Thank you, Alexis. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. You are now officially certified know-it-alls on best practices in international education. Go forth and share. Have a wonderful week. Join us next Tuesday, January 29th, when we will talk about lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender children in school and protecting them from harassment and bullying. Remember to follow Know It All, the ABCs of Education on Blog Talk Radio. Follow me at Allison R. Brown on Twitter. Find ABC on Facebook and read my blog at AllisonBrownConsulting.com. Thank you for joining us.